The news is constantly filled with numerous threats. But are our biggest threats too small to be seen? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're joined today by author Sonia Shaw, author of a book, Pandemic. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So if you've written several other books before on a variety of topics, what drew you to this particular topic? Well, my last book before this one was about a very old disease, malaria. After that book came out, there was a number of very new diseases that started popping up. H1N1 flu in 2009, resurgent malaria coming back again, MRSA, which actually struck my family, and then cholera reemerged in Haiti in 2010. And all of this kind of together sort of alerted me to this idea that, you know, there's a lot of new diseases coming up right now, which means that we can kind of look at how the process of a pathogen turning into an epidemic causing pathogen. Like, what is that process? That's what interests me. You know, indeed, I learned that over the past 50 years or so, we've had over 300 infectious diseases that have either newly emerged or reemerged into places they've never been seen before. So Ebola in West Africa, for example, but also SARS and, and MERS and new kinds of avian influenzas and extremely drug-resistant bacteria, etc. So there's this kind of sense with all of these new pathogens around that one of them might cause a pandemic, you know, an epidemic of disease that spreads across populations and continents. And so what I wanted to look at is what are the drivers of that? How does that process actually unfold? And I thought it was very elegant how you put the book together is you, you took those drivers and you kind of put them into different chapters of, of different ways how different epidemics occurred. So perhaps we talk about just a few of the specific epidemics, uh, potential pandemics. Sure. I found the stuff on cholera very interesting. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the origins of cholera as a, as a disease? The first pandemic of cholera started in 1811 in the Sundarbans area. So this is an area of wetlands where the rivers of Asia, kind of South Asia, kind of drain into the Bay of Bengal. And the pathogen that causes cholera is a natural inhabitant of these kinds of marine environments. So it lives in sort of shallow estuaries. And it's actually an important inhabitant of those communities. It helps recycle nutrients. But when it gets into people, you know, something different, quite different happens. And as this area in the Sundarbans was first settled by people during the British Raj, they cut down about 90% of this wetlands to turn it into rice farms and stuff. And so the bacteria started, you know, people started getting exposed to the water and, this, and it was very bacteria rich and the cholera bacteria slowly adapted to the human body. Around early 19th century, this pandemic of this very new disease that they called, they first called it the purge in um, the Bengal region, but then it spread out of South Asia into Russia into Europe and then made the crossing over the Atlantic in about 1831. So if it's such an efficient killer and kills people so quickly, you know, how did it make its way all the way from India to parts in the West here? Right. Well, that's so interesting because, of course, it's not easy for this kind of very virulent pathogen to travel that far, especially back then. And I don't think it would have been able to cross the ocean if it hadn't been for the Industrial Revolution, which had just completely changed how people were moving around. So there's this massive sort of movement from countryside into these new cities for factory jobs. And this is all kind of driven by the discovery of coal and the creation of the steam engine, which allowed us to build canals and create steamships that could go up and down rivers much faster, transatlantic travel. We had 
mean, millions of people coming over the Atlantic in the early 19th century, which just hadn't happened before. I mean, it was absolutely unprecedented. The numbers would have been in the hundreds in the decades before that. So quite suddenly, we had a lot of people in motion, and they and they were able to effectively carry this bacteria across the entire globe. So all politics is local. So can you talk about what happened with cholera in the 1830s in New York City? It first crossed the Atlantic in around 1831, 1832, and there was a few epidemics in Canada, and then it slowly started to make its way down the waterways, heading towards New York City, down the, the Hudson River and the Erie Canal, which had literally just opened in 1825, so just you know, seven years previously. And the Erie Canal had completely kind of transformed the economy of New York and especially New York City, which suddenly became this, like, you know, major thoroughfare. It became really one of the most important port cities in the world, which it hadn't been before that. And so there was all this new development, all these new people coming in, and cholera kind of, you know, traveled with them and arrived in New York in 1832 it was a very, very hot summer. They had very, very little drinking water supplies in the city of New York at that time. You know, if you think about Manhattan Island, surrounded by two salty waters, the Hudson and the East River, so you can't drink that. And they had one kettle pond in the middle of Manhattan when the city was first founded. The canal and the economic changes had really just, the population had exploded on this island, and they had basically filled that whole pond up with garbage. I mean, at first they had like had slaughterhouses out there, and then they had tenements and slums, and finally the city of New York just said, let's just fill it up with garbage, and they literally paid New Yorkers to dump their garbage into this pond, which was the only source of fresh water on the whole island. So basically they were just drinking shallow groundwater supplies, and these were extremely easy to get contaminated with, with any kind of fecal bacteria because there was no sewage system. So all these hundreds of thousands of people who are crammed into this very, very small piece of land with not that much drinking water, all you needed is like a couple introductions of something like cholera, and it just exploded. One of the things I, I found, one of the very, very fascinating with the book was the role of Aaron Burr, who was Thomas Jefferson's vice president, who was the person who shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel. The part he played in the propagation of cholera in New York City I found very fascinating. Can you expand on that? Yeah, it's a, just a great story. So Aaron Burr, of course, was this very wily politician. He was against Hamilton and the whole idea of federalism, this idea of like the nation kind of coming together and building banks and commerce and a common currency and all that. You know, this is back in um, you know the early days of the the United States. Um, so he wanted to start a bank that would be sort of a counterweight to the bank that Alexander Hamilton had built. But it was very difficult to do back then. And this, and he wanted to do it for political reasons. He was not an ideologue, but he wanted power. And this is one way to get power, because a new bank would fund all of sort of his cronies and stuff. There was actually a plan in the city of New York to tap the Bronx River, which was a freshwater river. It wasn't that far outside of the city. I and mean, they had the technology and the wherewithal and the budget that they could actually build some aqueducts and bring that water into the city. Because everyone knew, I mean, they didn't know that bad, stinky water actually made them sick, but they knew that it didn't taste good at all. And they knew that they didn't have enough. You know, they never had enough to put out fires or to clean the streets or anything like that. So there was this movement afoot to start a public waterworks company that would use the Bronx River to bring a clean drinking water supply for New York. Well, Aaron Burr decided that since he wanted to build a bank, that he would pretend like the bank would actually be a waterworks. 
right? Because you couldn't get a charter very easily for a new bank, but you could get a charter from the state of New York for a waterworks. And so he very sneakily went behind the back of these public waterworks people and seemed to had a role in inflating the costs that it would seem it would take for the public waterworks. And in various ways, it really historians are still trying to figure out how he did this, but he somehow turned the entire political sort of leadership in the state of New York against the idea of the public waterworks. And so instead, what they did is they gave him a charter, him and his cronies, to start a private water company. And with that private water company, they were also given the right to start a bank. And so what they did is they raised tons and tons of money, tons and tons of capital, which wasn't, you know, that this was all very, very controlled by the government back then. It wasn't something you could just do. So they got permission to do this. So they raised a ton of money and they spent a tiny, tiny fraction on it, of it on the waterworks and they used all the rest to make the bank. And so what happened is for the waterworks, instead of tapping the Bronx River, which was this nice, clean, freshwater river, wouldn't have been very expensive to tap it, the technology was there, et cetera. Um, of course, huge public benefit, even to the contemporaries at the time. They knew this would be great for their city to have more water because it would you know, taste better, for one thing. Instead, they used water that was literally the groundwater underneath the most notorious, crowded slum in the middle of Manhattan, a slum called Five Points, which actually is a subject of a Martin Scorsese movie that came out some years ago called Gangs of New York. So this is like a, just an, a really, really notoriously overcrowded slum with tenements and outhouses and privies that were leaky and overflowing. So, of course, the groundwater underneath that slum was most likely highly contaminated with fecal matter. And the Aaron Burr's water company just made a shallow well in there, and they distributed that water to one-third of the city of New York. And they did that for decades through at least two major cholera epidemic. So they certainly had a role in distributing contaminated water in the city of New York for many, many years. However, the bank that they started alongside the waterworks was, you know, a huge success. And, you know, Aaron Burr got a bunch of money from it. His cronies got a bunch of money from it. Burr went on to become vice president, which is what he wanted. He ascended politically. He was the vice president to, to Jefferson. And ultimately, that bank is now the biggest bank in the United States. It's um, J.P. Morgan Chase. That, that, that's incredible They're, that our biggest bank has such kind of a sullied past. Really amazing. It is. I know. And I really, what I really wanted to do, because I was able to get data on all the people who got sick and died of, of cholera in New York City in 1832, they, the physicians at the time kept records of all that. So I had the addresses of all those people and now that we have all this new geocoding technology, the public library in New York had actually geocoded some old maps of New York. Because, of course, the street names are, everything's totally different now. But I was able to get GPS data for all of these old historic addresses of the people who died and got sick of cholera in 1832 in New York, which was really cool to do. But what I wanted to get, which I was not able to get, is in the archives of the J.P. Morgan Chase in their library, in their archives, they have the addresses of all their customers in 1832. And it would have been so fascinating to overlay those two data sets and wow. see exactly who, you know, who was getting water from who, which is, of course, what John Snow did, right, in 
in 1854 in London. Exactly, exactly. So if you're just tuning in, this is Reach MD Book Club. I'm your host, John Russell, and we're talking with author Sonia Shaw about her book, Pandemic. So I think the last time that we really saw cholera making kind of headlines here in the United States was was in Haiti after the disaster. So what happened there? Well, it's, an, it's really such a, a tragic story. So Haiti suffered a magnitude 7 earthquake in 2010, January. And the United Nations had already been like very active in Haiti. They had a peacekeeping mission that had been going on in Haiti for a long time because of all the sort of political instability that in that country. Well, after the earthquake, they sent even more over, including a contingent of soldiers from Nepal. And the UN actually hires soldiers kind of on the cheap. Like you can hire soldiers from different countries. If you wanted to hire American soldiers to come to Haiti or somewhere else, there's a certain sort of per diem, like there's a cost to that per day for an American soldier to do sort of this job for the UN. So the UN doesn't hire American soldiers because it's expensive. They require better food, better, better medical screening and treatment and all this other stuff. So the UN, to save money, they hire soldiers from much poorer countries. So in Haiti, the main countries that supply soldiers for the UN peacekeeping mission are from Brazil and Nepal and, and some other countries that are, you know, have sort of cash-strapped militaries. So that this is like decent money for them, right, to the, the small, the modest budget that the UN gives them. Anyway, a contingent of soldiers from Nepal came into Haiti 10 months after the earthquake. There's a lot of people who are malnourished. There's a lot of people who are made homeless by the earthquake. And these soldiers had just done a training session in Kathmandu, which had been in the grip of a cholera epidemic. And within days of arriving in Haiti, the state of the camp that everyone kind of knew was dumping waste from the latrines into a tributary of the main river there, the Artibonite River. And within days of these soldiers arriving, the river was contaminated and people started getting sick of cholera all down in this river valley out into, which travels kind of east to west across the middle part of Haiti. And you know, farmers used this water. They, they farmed rice along this water. They fished in this water. They used it for domestic purposes. And Haiti had never had cholera before, which is actually an amazing thing if you think about it, because there had been cholera all over the Caribbean many times over again. But Haiti somehow had been unscathed until then. And then within, I think, just a year, there was more cholera in Haiti than everywhere else in the world combined. I mean, it was just ex absolutely explosive. And it's still going on to this day. Now they're saying cholera is endemic in Haiti. It's just a you know permanent part of the landscape there. It's really amazing. So the, so the parallels between cholera and Ebola, you know, once upon a time people said when folks got Ebola, they would be too sick to travel so it would never leave where it started. And I guess we found that not to be true, correct? Yeah, well, to some extent. I mean, certainly Ebola has never struck before 2014, never struck anywhere that was as highly populated as with the places in Liberia and Sierra Leone and Guinea that were struck. I mean, within about a month of the first cases emerging in this forest town in Guinea, Ebola was able to travel into three capital cities. And that had never happened before. I mean, these three capital cities together combined population of like three million people. And Ebola had never been anywhere with more than a few hundred thousand people, right? So all of those outbreaks were in relatively remote areas. 
but the whole, you know, our whole kind of human population is becoming very, very urban. So people are coming out of the countryside, and a lot of these cities are in poor countries. So when even these like remote, you know, usually remote pathogens now emerge, they're coming out in places where there's a lot of people living really, really closely together. And then on top of it, there was, you know, the cultural habits in those societies, these burial rituals that required kind of touching the dead and crowded slums where people are not able to isolate the sick properly. And so it just spread so quickly. And it wasn't caught fast enough, obviously. If we, I mean, Ebola is actually pretty easy to control if you catch it early. But, you know, by the time the WHO kind of put out the warning, the alert that this thing was happening, there were so many chains of transmission going on that it was nearly impossible to to stop them all. So for the Ebola story, do you think in the West it's been a kind of a good test that will be ready for the next pandemic? Or do you think it's been something that people kind of view as, you know, Y2K, that it never really got here to the United States in any way, shape or form? So it's going to kind of diminish people's worry about the next pandemic. I think it's that's an interesting question. I mean, I think we kind of get more prepared in fits and starts. Like after 9-11, for example, we suddenly started thinking about bioterrorism in a real way. And that's the only reason why we even have had a few vaccine candidates for Ebola. It was traced back to 9-11 when we were scared of, you know, somebody using a a bioweapon against us in in a terrorist kind of attack. So not to say those Ebola vaccines came in handy. They didn't, not yet. I mean, they're still in trials even now, but at least they were, that was something, right? Mm -hmm. There's not, it wasn't nothing. They were just, they weren't fast enough in develop, you know, developing these things, but there was something. And those are kind of baby steps that happened because of 9-11. And I think we're going to have a few more of those baby steps now, preparing for avian flu outbreaks with new vaccines, Ebola outbreaks with new vaccines, getting hospitals prepared for influxes of worried well and also people who are sick. But the, really the most important thing is like increasing surveillance. And I think that that's going to be like the most critical thing. And I don't know that these outbursts of panic that we have about new diseases really pushes that process forward. That process kind of has its own momentum that kind of just like slowly (laughs) progresses onward. So for a final question, as a researcher and as a parent, what pandemic has you staying up at night worrying? Well, you know, in five years of reporting and doing research on pandemics, the thing that really seems to scare most of the experts I've talked to is avian influenza. And and I think that's probably the most likely to cause a pandemic, considering how quickly respiratory pathogens can travel around the world and how often they do. We have like a factory for these new flu viruses now because of the growth of the poultry industry in Asia. And as people get more wealthy there, they demand more protein in their diets and they want more chicken and more more pork. And pigs and chickens are the reservoirs of these flu viruses. They cross over from waterfowl into chickens and pigs, and then they turn into these much more deadly forms of influenza. And several of these new pathogens that have already emerged can infect humans, too. They just don't transmit that well yet. But the process by which they become better at transmitting between people is not very well understood. And as soon as it happens, that's it. It's not like a progressive process. It could just be like a switch that gets turned on. And then suddenly you have this pathogen that can travel really quickly around the world. And that's exactly what happened in 1918. And that's what happened in 2009 with H1N1. So I think it's likely we'll have something like that possibly in our lifetimes. But still, it's all the little things that kind of add up, even if you don't have the giant pandemic that takes 160 million people get sick. Even if you don't have that level 
of devastation, just the slow kind of buildup of all the new pathogens we have now, the tick-borne pathogens. You know, now we have not just Lyme disease, we have Babesia. We have more and more of these tick-borne pathogens because we are invading tick territory and we're changing those habitats where ticks live. West Nile virus and dengue and chikungunya, all these new pathogens carried by mosquitoes, which are traveling farther north because of climate change. All of these things kind of add them all together. And I think, and, and then the failure of our antibiotics are progressively failing. You know, we're going back to an age when infectious diseases really kind of shaped our lives in a much more significant fashion. And, and we're not used to that. Those of us in like my generation, we grew up during this era when antibiotics actually worked and we didn't have to think about infectious diseases as like a big part of our lives that you had to actually plan around. And I think that's over now. Well, it makes for a great book. The book is Pandemic. It's this author, Sonia Shaw. Sonia, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.